Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We're going to continue our series in Real Jesus, looking at the life message and ministry or mission of Jesus and how he shapes our life. And we started this series a few months ago, and um, we focused on his message, and we now started some, a section on his parables and his teachings. Um, and I just want to remind us of why we're doing that and uh, why we're doing uh, this series. At the end of the day, my hope in this series is that you all meet uh, the real Jesus, that you have an intimate encounter with him. See, I believe that Jesus is so compelling um, that if you read the scriptures and really meet the Jesus of the scriptures and who lived in human history, who died on a cross, who's been raised from the dead and, and now currently reigns, if you meet this terrific, good, and beautiful God, that um, it will transform your life for good. That he is, he, hallelujah, thank you so much. Star in the front row, star, extra credit for you. Um, <laughs> We uh, actually would love to give you some coffee. There are some cups outside and free coffee <laughs> section out there. Um, but I want you, I really just long for you uh, to know him and be with him. And, and that's the whole point. So that's what we're doing here. You guys good with that? I like it. Okay, now we're on the same page, feeling good. Let's pray for the love of God. Let's pray together and we'll jump into the text. Jesus, we do celebrate you and we wanna have fun today. We thank you for um, your family that we are adopted into, that you uh, signed your life on the dotted line and made it possible for us to be called sons and daughters, that we don't deserve it. It's called grace, that we can't earn it. We can't climb a ladder for it. We can't do enough good deeds for it. You just say it's free. It's a gift. Come and be and live. You expand our life. You don't diminish it. You you create more capacity for eternity within us here and now. And Jesus, we pray that we would know you, that we would experience you, that we would live and learn how to live our life here and now, that we would be full of hope and joy and peace and love, that, Lord, you would heal us, that you would give life to our, our bodies, you give life to our souls, that you would speak deep into the places of darkness within us and redeem those stories we're telling for the good, that you would renew all things. Lord, and I pray this morning um, that as we come to you, that we would be open, open to what you have for us, that in uh, this, this particular sermon, that we would be willing to listen to your voice as you speak to us. In your name we pray, amen. amen. So one of the things that Jesus does is in the Gospels is connect the human soul to material possessions. So Jesus does this time and time again. Matthew chapter 16, it says, when, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus, time and time again in the scriptures, uh, establishes a connection between spiritual things and material things. This morning I have one point and it's really an observation that I want to just reiterate over and over again, that, um, that there are strange mystical bonds that intimately connect each of us to our stuff. You like that? Let's, let's look at this. There are strange mystical bonds, and I know it's funny, that intimately connect each of us to our stuff. And to prove this point, let me just, uh, and I, I, you will all agree with me in just one second, okay? So strange mystical bonds. Anyone here have a purse? 
Anyone here? Okay, let me see. Okay, we have, yeah, but I know you and you're easily giving out. Who's not wanting to share there? Who's hiding <laughs> there? Can, can I, do you have a purse here? Me? Nope, you right here. You, do you have a purse? Yeah. What's your name? I don't know you. Emily. Emily, nice to meet you. Can I have your purse? You're so, look, give it up for Emily. This is amazing. Oh, wow, wow. So this, I've never, uh, if I have met you, I'm sorry. I don't know, really know you. So this is Emily and this is her purse. Okay, now here we go. Here's the point. Ready? <laughs> Keep it down, okay? Um, okay, you guys ready? All right, let's do this. Did I just prove my point? What do you feel? Yucky, privacy violation. Violation! What else? Anxiety, worry. Emily, what do you feel? Uneasy. Uneasy. That's very kind. Give it up for Emily. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so would you now agree that there are strange, mystical bonds that intimately connect each of us to our stuff, right? Okay, now I'm going to prove it in the scriptures. So go to what all the gardeners love, the the book of Leviticus. So let's go to Leviticus, and um, this is what we start our church members off in. It's a fun, no, it's not. Uh, It's great, it's a great book, but we're gonna go to Leviticus 19. I'm gonna make a case from the Old Testament. Um, But I just wanna give you a perspective, because there in the scriptures is a link between salvation and your stuff. Today, I want to give you a biblical perspective of salvation and stuff. Is there a connection between salvation and how we use and treat our stuff? And it got so quiet. (laughs) Uneasy, anxious, violated, privacy. Leviticus 19, we're going to start with the Old Testament, looking at an Old Testament perspective. Because as Jesus speaks in the first century, um, they ha- to a Jewish audience, they have an Old Testament mindset. So this was rooted into the people he's speaking. They would have, ha- they would have understood things differently based on, on the scriptures. And so we're going to look at a couple of passages and just make some observations. We're going to go to the New Testament, talk about some stories. We're going to share one quick parable, and then we're going to end, and we're all going to go eat together, okay? Sound good? We're not all going to eat together, okay? That was a joke. Because who's going to pay the bill? Anyone? No? Okay, all right, shoot. Dang it. Um, Okay, Leviticus 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Obviously, we already, we we don't do this as a church, so good work. Uh, Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, I am the Lord your God. So in Leviticus 19, this is under a section called various laws. This is kind of the law of gleaning. And so what it means is God gave the people of Israel land and they would um, produce various harvests around the land and uh, from their land. And what God instructs instructs his people to do is to leave the edges for the foreigners the strangers in your, in your midst that don't have enough. So you would basically go over kind of your field and, and collect the fruit, the produce from your field, and uh, you would leave the edges for the strangers. You don't know them, the strangers in your midst. Or you would have a vineyard and you would collect the grapes, and if any of them fell, you were not allowed to pick them up. There was a law saying that those that don't have enough 
uh, are able to borrow and share from those that have enough. You with me? uh, Pay attention to the foreigners in your midst. Leave some for those that don't have enough. Deuteronomy 24, verse 17. I'm gonna go one more place. Deuteronomy 24, verse 17. Listen to this. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. So all throughout the Old Testament, these are just two snapshots. God commands his people to care for the powerless and most vulnerable in a community. So you see all throughout the Old Testament this, this kind of tri- triad of the, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. And there are all sorts of laws that were designed to protect the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. Those most powerless, le- the least powerful, those that are the most vulnerable in your community, you are to provide justice, to care for them, to allow them to share the fields that are yours um, through various laws God set up in the Old Testament. And notice the reasoning that you see in Deuteronomy, which you see all throughout the Old Testament. This is, this is what you do. It says, God says, don't deprive them of justice. Why? Because you were once slaves. You were once powerless. You have received grace. And all throughout the Old Testament, what God does to motivate his people is basically to say, you at one point in your life were recipients of grace. Therefore, out of that grace, share what you've already received from me. God, in the Old Testament, God's blessing in my life, this is one way to look at it, God's blessing in my life is intimately connected to how I deal with those in my midst that don't have enough. This is Old Testament teaching, Old Testament mindset. We haven't even got to Jesus yet. Old Testament teaching that God's blessing in my life is directly connected to how I deal with those in my midst that don't have enough. So throughout the scripture, God will always care for the, uh, will always bring it back to grace. Obey these commands because you were once slaves. You were once in bondage and I gave you freedom. You were once foreigners and I gave you a land. You were once without hope, I gave you hope. You were once helpless and I rescued you. Whatever God has extended to you, make sure you extend that to other people. He always brings it back to grace. Whatever God has extended to you, make sure you extend that to other people. Why do we struggle with this mindset? Why do we struggle with the idea that whatever God has given us, we should give that to others? Well, a couple of reasons, in my opinion. Sin's an obvious one. We're we're also consumed by consumerism, materialism, pleasure, we're self-focused, so that keeps us from focusing on other people. But I think there's two mindsets that really compete against this idea of extending what's been given to us. The first is the mentality of entitlement, as I'll call it. We are the entitled generation, us millennials, so yay to that. And we basically think we deserve it. We earn everything. It should be given to us. We have a right to it. We should occupy, am I right? And part of, there's some great, there's a lot of great things that are coming out of our generation, but the mentality of entitlement is this idea. I put myself through college, 
I worked hard all those years. I've spent countless hours training, sacrificing nights with friends, giving myself so that I can get to this place. I'm not gonna allow the, the borders of my harvest to be for the poor. I'm gonna go back and pick up the fruit that is rightfully mine. I earned it, I deserved it, I'm entitled to it. Who gave you the capacity to work? Who gave you breath in your lungs? Who gave you the ability to think, to reason? Who gave you the strength in your bones so that you can get up every day and go to that job that you slaved away at? It's all grace. Mentality of entitlement. The other mentality is the scarcity mentality. And I see this all the time. And it's driven by fear and anxiety, which we also are the generation of, uh, of anxiety. Um, and it's basically this, that what God has blessed me with today won't be there tomorrow. Am I right? I don't know what tomorrow holds. Therefore, I need to hold on to what I have, the relationship, the job, the, I need to save as much as I can just in case, worst case scenario, because I only know God's present in this moment. I don't know if he'll be the same God tomorrow. Scarcity. Scarcity mindset keeps us from extending what God has already given to us in the first place. And the Old Testament teaches that generosity is a way <clears throat> of reminding ourselves we all live in the grace of God. Generosity is a way of reminding ourselves that we all live in the grace of God. Let's go back to Leviticus for a second. Leviticus 19. <clears throat> I want to make a, a little sub point that helps us understand why Jesus connects the human soul to possessions and stuff. And there's some, there's some um, Hebrew uh, kind of mindset we need to understand of what the law really was in the, uh, in the Old Testament. So Leviticus 19, again, our favorite book. When you reap, uh, verse nine, the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor, the foreigner. Um, verse 13, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Okay, that's helpful. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Okay, it's teaching us how to work. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but you, uh, fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not, verse 15, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the, the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among you, your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. So how does this scripture in Leviticus shape our view of the world? How do we interact in the world with this Old Testament mindset? So in the time of Jesus, the, the way the Jewish community was structured was around the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The word Torah means law, the commandments of God, but it was referred to as the way of God. The way of God. And in the Old Testament, um, uh, they would discuss and apply uh, the way of God to their everyday life. They, they believed that the best way to live here and now was to apply God's way of life, uh, God's way, his teachings, his laws to your ordinary life. And so what you see, if you read the Torah, if you read the Old Testament, there's all sorts of commandments, 613. And God's way of life has all sorts of implications for your everyday life. And so the Hebrew concept, this is what they're thinking. So God's scriptures teaches how, I can't even read it, these stars are in the way. Darn it, these stars. <laughs> so, 
It says food, neighbors, land, work, foreigners, money, how to speak, sexuality, business, clothing, families, crops, interests, children, widows, disease, possessions, and everything else in, in between. In other words, God's way of life is all-encompassing. That there were no compartments of life that were spiritual or not. In fact, in the Hebrew language, there is no word for spiritual because that would assume that something is not spiritual. The Hebrew conception of life is everything is spiritual. God should be involved in everything in life. Are you with me? So that's the Old Testament perspective. So we, we get back to Jesus' day. And let's, let's, just for a second, let's just think about the picture that Jesus is living in. Um, around the time that Jesus was born, there's a guy named Herod. And you read the, the story of Herod the Great in, the, um, in Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel. He was the ruling monarch of, of Israel, the king of Israel. He partnered with Romans um, to rule kind of uh, what would be uh, Israel and the land Palestine. And so what you have is this king who um, built and built and built and built. He built fortresses. He built um, palaces. He built homes. He built the temple. You can go to uh, Jerusalem. I've been there. You can go to Jerusalem, touch bricks, giant thousand ton bricks that are still there that are 2,000 years old that Herod built and used to extend the walls of the temple. You have... um, he built, he built ports and all sorts of stuff. And how did he get the money to build all this stuff? Well, he taxed people. He placed heavy taxes on first century Israel. In fact, by the time Jesus was walking around Galilee and ministering in Galilee, 90% of the population of Israel was living in poverty. They were struggling to get by because of what the corrupt system that took place during the time of Jesus, where people were basically indentured servants, they lost their family-owned property, and they had to lease property to the ruling elites. And the ruling elites uh, of less than 10% of the time of Jesus, they were part of the system of control. They had lots of homes, they, had, they built all this wealth, and most of the people, as they have extra homes and wealth, were starving and struggling to get by. That's what we're dealing with in the first century. Are you with me? Now, if you read the Old Testament, there's all sorts of laws against that, that God never wanted that to take place. He didn't want the burden. There was this thing called the year of Jubilee where debts would be paid, land would be returned. There wouldn't be a a gap between the haves and the the have-nots, excuse me. And so there was a system um, where the elites taxed the people. How did the people up high get the money from the people with taxes? How did they get them? They had tax collectors. There was this whole industry where people were paid money to go around collecting taxes from those that didn't have enough food to eat. How did those that didn't have enough food to eat feel about that? They hated it. It was the worst kind of injustice. And it was a systemic injustice, a systemic evil that was all around the first century. So if you were in the system and you were poor and there were these people that had lots and lots of money and lots and lots of homes and then they, they paid this system, these groups of tax collectors to collect money from you um, by collecting taxes, how would you feel about the people that were in charge of the tax collectors, the chief tax collectors? Are you there? First century. Am I, am I missing it? Or do you, I mean, is this a Star Wars moment for you? You would, you would be really upset with him. You would feel, as Emily would say, uneasy. 
Luke chapter 19, there's this beautiful story sandwiched in the, in the story of uh, Luke, of this man. So check this out, Luke 19.1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, Jericho is 17 miles away from Jerusalem, and it was the second most populated city outside of Jerusalem. And Jericho was the place where all of the summer homes were for the ruling elite. It was the place where there's a natural hot spring, a natural spring, and that's where they would go to, um, that was where most of the ruling elite lived outside of Jerusalem. They lived in Jericho. So when, it, when, you, when you're reading the story, just know that that's what's going on. So a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm, I must stay at your home, your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So first century context, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. The Jewish rabbi is preaching the way of life, the, the Torah, offering a new way of the kingdom of God. And there's a whole system that's corrupt. And there are people that are in charge of the system. They're hated by 90% of the population. And uh, Jesus goes and becomes a guest, dines at a table with this man. You would think as a first century peasant that Jesus is in on the system. He's a sellout. He would be marked by the religious folks as unclean because tax collectors were not allowed to have fellowship in the temple. They were excommunicated from Israel. In fact, there's rabbis that say they're no longer sons of Abraham. Think about that for a second. <clears throat> and then uh, Jesus is preaching this message and, 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 and all of a sudden he's, he's extending table fellowship, which is in first century terms saying, I'm cool, we're cool. It's extending shalom, peace, friendship, which actually had deeper meaning other than just a like on Facebook. It actually meant something really serious in the first century. It meant forgiveness and embrace. So Jesus is dining with the sinner, a corrupt, evil man who's part of the system. And the people would have been upset. They would have been frustrated. But something strange happens. Something very strange happens. Verse eight, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Brothers and sisters, in the story, it's so profound. The only time we ever know for certain salvation has occurred happened in the story. The only time we know for certain that salvation took place happens in the story of Zacchaeus. We don't know what he said. We don't know what he confessed. We don't know what he believed. We don't know if he prayed a prayer. All we know is he has a meal with Jesus and says, half of my possessions I'm giving away. Anyone that I wronged, I'm paying restitution fourfold. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this home. Salvation has happened. Salvation has come to this, this house. 
Salvation has come to the man who is the worst kind of sinner, the corrupt, the evil, the one that shouldn't get in, that doesn't belong. Something happens to Zacchaeus. Something happens to Zacchaeus when he's meeting with Jesus and his response is to give up half of his stuff in response to who Jesus is and whatever takes place at that dinner table or at the fellowship table, the table of fellowship. Salvation in this case has something to do with this guy's stuff. Interesting, huh? I never, I, I've never seen this before. I was, I was taken back by this. And then I was reading this parable. So a guy is saved, and the word is saved or delivered. Now what's interesting, by the way, Jesus' name is Yahweh. Uh, sorry, it's not Yahweh, it's Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves, God saves, God's salvation. God's salvation has a meal in the house of ta- the tax collector, and, and Jesus simply says, Salvation has come to your home. Isn't that funny? Language is really cool. Okay, that's just for me. Luke 12. (laughs) Let's look at what happens. So salvation has something to do with this guy who gives up some of his stuff and it's seen as salvation. Okay, do you see that picture? Okay, now let's look at another picture with another rich guy who has lots of stuff, but he's condemned. It says this in Luke chapter 12 and go there. This is an important parable for us. Verse 15 Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I'm just gonna read that one more time. That could preach itself. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I I will tear down my barn and build a bigger one. And there I will store up my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Jesus then says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now that's, that's in the Bible, so that sucks. And uh, <laughs> it's, I've been uneasy all week with this text because of the implications. And after the last service, I, I ended by saying, don't try to resolve the tension. Be full of discomfort because this is an uncomfortable message. Jesus disturbs our norm and our comfort and our reality. This is a warning parable. Jesus tells this parable as a warning. And in this parable, Jesus teaches us something that happens to this rich man. Now, the the people of Jesus' day would have known exactly what the guy in the story should do. If you have extra, the Torah teaches you to share with those that don't have enough right? And that's not what the guy does. In this parable, Jesus talks about something that is horrible. This guy does something so terrible that, that, that God is going to punish him decisively, instantaneously, and swift. And what is his crime? What's the crime in the story? It's, it, it, is a, it is somebody who has more than they need, and in response to having more added to the already more than they need, he hoards it. 
He doesn't share it. And he wastes his life instead of making the most of his, of his time. He's not generous. He doesn't share. He's not rich towards God. He wastes his life. He's no longer shrewd, no longer working, no longer doing anything except indulging in his overabundance. And God hates it and demands his life from him. In other words, the way the guy, the rich dude, treats his stuff gets him condemned. The story of Zacchaeus, another wealthy dude, has an interaction with Jesus and reorients the way he sees his things. And God says, salvation has come. Jesus says, salvation has come to your house. Salvation has come to this house. The story is quite frustrating. One man's condemned and one man is saved. And do you think this is a serious subject? Why does Jesus talk so much about our stuff money and possessions. Why does he talk about it so much? I just, I wanna give you some facts because some of you are like, wow, well, the church talks about money all the time. Well, check this out. There are 2,200 references in the Bible to money and possessions. 2,200 separate references. Three times as many references to money as to love. Seven times as many references to money as to prayer. Eight times to, uh, as to money than there is to believe. It compri- uh, comprises 15% of God's word. It's one out of every five teachings of Jesus. Jesus talks about money or possessions, one out of five teachings, and it's 17 of 38 parables. Nearly half of all of Jesus' parables are stories that talk about money and possessions and how you deal with your stuff. Why does Jesus talk about money and stuff and possessions so much? Because there are strange mystical bonds that intimately connect each of us to our stuff because there are strange mystical bonds that connect each of us to our stuff. We are identified by what we have. And you see, possessions are of great importance because of what they can accomplish in the world and the good they can provide and because of what they can accomplish in your soul. They give you meaning and purpose and identity and security. We are connected to our things. Have you ever lost your phone What does it feel like? It's like, I have to wait a week for a replacement phone. It's like, I have to wait three hours. I've seen people at Starbucks when they lose their phones. They're like fidgeting with their wallets. <laughs> they don't know. They don't know how to stand in line. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever lost something? Have you, have you ever been robbed and it feels like you've been violated of something intimate? You can't go on. You grieve the loss of the stuff because we are intimately connected to our things. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Have you ever let somebody borrow something of yours and they brought it back scratched or damaged or it didn't fit you the way it used to fit you? Anyone with roommates? Okay. Or younger siblings? My brother did that to me all the time. And what happens after it it comes back damaged? What happens to you? You become closed off to the idea of sharing anymore right? Your world becomes smaller. You see, our hearts are with our stuff. It's that simple. It says, you know, studies show that 90% of divorces in America are related to money issues. 90%. 80% of families in the United States spend more money than they make. They're going into debt. Something about our society is designed 
um, and basically tells us that we should live beyond our means. What the heck is going on? The average American household has over $15,000 of credit card debt. Jesus charges into Jericho. He charges into Jericho, announcing good news. And the worst sinner, Zacchaeus, in that town comes to him and has a meal with him. And his response to his interaction, his encounter with the living Jesus is, I'm going to get rid of all the distractions. I'm gonna get rid of half of my stuff. I'm going to get rid of the things that distract me from discipleship. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus has an interaction with Jesus and it changes his view of money and Jesus' response to him is salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus, part of the class that is designed to work through the system and this, he, he, the system benefits him, begins to respond and give half of his stuff away and pay restitution and Jesus says salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this house. If Jesus would come and visit you this morning, if he would sit down with you and you would have a meal with him, what would he say to you about your life? Salvation has come to your job, closet, 401k, retirement, your dream house, your career, your spouse, your family, Salvation has come to your social media, your website, your name. You see, in many ways, when somebody gives and extends what God has already given, salvation has come. When somebody gives away and extends what God has already given, salvation has come. You see, what do we do with this message? Let me just make one more point. We give as much as we can. We give as much as we can to the church. We give as much as we can to those in need locally. We give as much as we can to those in need globally. We give and we give and we give and we give and we give to the point where we get to the, near the end and we realize we have more now than when we started giving in the first place. You see, this is the truth of why Jesus talks so much about money and possessions. God doesn't want your money. He wants your freedom. The story of Zacchaeus is a story of freedom. The story of the rich fool is a story of being held in bondage by the things that you possess. You see, the whole point of the story is that when we learn to give ourselves and we give our, our stuff away, we learn to give more and more of ourselves to God. Because it's the very thing that kept Zacchaeus from fully experiencing salvation was the stuff he had collected. And we know what this is like. It takes energy, time, resources. I talked to a guy after this service who said, Darren, I have two storage units. I have two sheds at my house and I have a, a basement. He lives in, uh, in Utah, a basement full of stuff. And I see this stuff once or three times a year tops. I have another guy that came up and said, I had to sell my second car, which was a Porsche, not because it wasn't paid off, not because it was a money waste room, because it took time, energy, and money. Those are big things. How many of us need to be set free from the worry of all the things in our life that we are attached to? 
all the extra possession. How many of us have identified ourselves with what we own, with how we look, with the stuff we have, with our jobs, with our careers? And what Jesus comes to, when Jesus comes to Zacchaeus, he liberates him. He doesn't say a prayer. He doesn't have this belief. He doesn't confess doctrinal statements. He simply meets Jesus and says, I gotta live differently. And yet, we play church. We play church. We show up, put a couple bucks in, go home. We don't post those types of posts. We don't drink that much. We're a little kinder around the water, you know, break room or whatever than everyone else. And do you realize how big of a movement it, it would be? Oh, I mean, Zacchaeus is part of the system. What did the people, 90% of the po- were poor, what would they think after this guy meets Jesus and he starts sharing all of his stuff? It was an economic revolution. Imagine if Jesus' message touched our wallets. Touch the way we buy clothes, the way we look at ourselves, touch our social media, touch our, touch our, our, our very existence, our, our career, our motivation. Imagine if you allowed him into those places. What kind of movement would we have in this little part of Long Beach? It would be crazy if we really went for it. And this isn't a story of condemnation. This is a story of freedom. How many of you are longing to be set free? How many of you worry about your next paycheck. Worry about whether or not you're gonna have enough tomorrow. Worry. How many of you are tired of the worry? Tired of the same arguments with your spouse about the same conversations about money? How many of you are tired of trying to keep up with whoever it is in your life that you've said, I need to keep up with that person? If Jesus came to your life and sat down with you, where would he bring salvation? Where would he set you free? Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.